0: Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hi,
1: everyone. Welcome to the show. Hope everyone's having a great day. And I have to begin with, yes, my special shout out to Yoshiko Dard. Yoshiko, I wonder how many years we've been doing this. Long time I've been starting this way. And I know right now you're looking, saying, hello, Joyce. So everyone, you know how strongly I feel about keeping our history alive. So, therefore, Yoshiko, wife of Justin Dart, who we lost years ago, one of the greatest leaders of the ADA. That's why I bring it up all the time. So here we go, Ireland. Yes, it's Ireland. Once again, 17 countries listen to this show, but Ireland rocks it. Every week. You guys, you must be great disability advocates and champions. I am going to come and visit there one day and I'm going to go to a studio and I am going to meet all of you. I am telling you, Thank you, and thank you for being such great advocates. And thank you to our lead sponsor, HiMark, in Pittsburgh and now across the United States. What a great company they are. HiMark has been the lead sponsor for three years now of this show. And another sponsor is Audio AudioEye, you are awesome. AudioEye makes a software product that is for the web for digital accessibility. Love them also. So, speaking of history, I have quite the guest today. I love this woman. I want to tell you one of the reasons. There are many, but here's one of them. Some people in our disability community, they get in silos, I have no idea why this has happened, but, you know, I'm mad at you, you're mad at me, uh, I'm after what you're doing. Oh, no, my organization is too small. Uh, You know, so many times we've said, it's Justin that brought us all together. Don't get me wrong, there are giants in our community, but one person that has never been in any silo is Colleen Starkloff, the co-founder of Starkloff Disability Institute and a champion disability advocate. Colleen, welcome
2: to the show. Joyce, it is always a privilege, and I greatly look forward to being able to just chat with you about the issues that we care about so much in our community, and I want to add to your um, praise for Justin and Yoshko. Yoshiko and I are great friends, we always march together on the Capitol, but we um, came into this movement because of husbands who we love dearly and who taught us about the rights of people with disabilities and how important it is that we stand up and speak out about emancipation, independence, and full participation of disabled people. So I greatly appreciate their uh, legacy to all of us and their example to all of us. And it's my honor, and I'm humbled to be in such um, great company with leaders like Justin Yoshko and my late husband, Max Starkloff, and a ton more of friends I've met through this great movement, including you, know what, that, you.
1: Oh, <laughs> thank you. But you know what, Colleen, that is a very unbelievable in some ways example, because that's true about you. And your wonderful husband and how wonderful you have carried all this on. But since we are starting from the beginning, you know, I'm not going to start this without talking about this great man, Max, that you first met at a nursing home. And when I tell people that, they say to me, why was he in a nursing home?
2: Yeah.
1: Why? (laughs) And how did you meet? So I'll let you explain
2: well, it's a it's a nice story to be able to tell, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to 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 do so. Um, I was educated as a physical therapist at Saint Louis University, and the year before I um, finished the PT program at Saint Louis U, I was um, approached about a job in Eureka, Missouri, which. It, was near the farm that my family lived on. And they what they wanted was a chief physical therapist. Well that was great to graduate from college and become a chief P T right away. But in fact I was the only P T, so it was you know, they could call me whatever they wanted. I was just the only one there. But I was asked um the, the if only I would, one the only one where? At at the nursing home. The but the, the position un- the they offered only one. me oh, as
1: goodness. chief PT
2: was wow was the big deal, but I was the only PT. So, right, you um, were the you were the me, uh, chief PT. <laughs> made me the chief PT. So um, I accepted that, so that and and I had a year to go. But they had a PT there who remained to finish out for the year and kind of hold down the fort. He was working part time anyway, and they really were hoping for a full time PT department. So um, I went out of school and then started right away on October 1st, 1973. And on that day, the, the PT, the outgoing PT, whose name was Roger, was orienting me to the nursing home. And um, that's when I first saw this man who was quadriplegic wheeling down the hallway. Um, and I didn't see his face, and he said, Hello, Roger and Roger said, hello, Max, and I said, the man just wheeled down the hall, and I said to Roger, is that Max Starkloff, and he said, yeah, do you know him, and I said, no, no, I, I don't know him, but I knew who he was, Joyce, because a couple years prior, while I was a young PT student, my sister Mary had come home from college for the summer, and she got a job working as a Nurses aide in that nursing home, and he had asked Max, star, Max had asked her out, and she came home, oh. and she told me that this guy who was disabled had asked her out, and she said she wasn't going to go out with him. And I said, Why not? And she said, Because he's disabled. And I said, Well, what's that got to do with anything? And she said, Well, he would really like me, and um, <laughs> I'd have to turn him down. And I said, Well. Why? And she said, Colleen, because he's disabled. Well, you know, that was a kind of interesting for me that I even asked those questions. Why would she turn down somebody just on his disability? And I didn't think about it for many years later. But it's a good thing that she turned him down, Joyce, because my sister Mary was really hot. And um, if Max had gone out with her and if they'd become an item, I never would have gotten him. So, I, so, here's what happens The second day on the job, I hear this sound of this wheelchair, and here comes this guy wheeling into my office, and now I see his face, and I saw in his eyes and his smile a man of real substance, and I, that was it. I was done. This was the guy. I fell in love with him on the spot. Now, wow. I, know, I know you don't have pictures on your radio show, but the guy was drop-dead gorgeous himself. But there really was something you could just see in him. And so I was really taken and began to talk to him a lot and learn about why he was there and, wh- and what he looked forward to. And the reason he was there was because in he was injured in nineteen fifty nine in an automobile accident. He had a C three four five spinal cord injury, which is pretty high on the spinal Not column. Enough. Um meant he couldn't walk, he couldn't, you know, squeeze his hands or use his hands. But he could get his left arm around me and that was enough of a hug and that was fine with me because there was so much substance to this man. And you'd wonder, why would a wonderful guy like this, at the young age of, he was injured at 21 years old, at 26 years old, he went into a nursing home in a rural community way from St. Louis, 45 miles from St. Louis. And um, the nursing home was only for men. The only women there were women from the local community, like my hot little sister who came in, you know, working to a summer shift. But there was really not much of an outlet, and the reason that he went there is because there was not much of a system of personal assistance. Some people call it attendance, personal care attendance. I don't choose to use the word care, because I think disabled people can take care of themselves by making their own decisions. But they, you know, those were the people, there was not a system readily available in our communities or anywhere in the country to provide someone who could come into your house or live with you that you could afford, who could help you get bathed and dressed and out of bed every day. If you had the money to hire a private duty nurse, that was fine. So, lots of people like Max found themselves in nursing homes. So, he was there, but he was trying to figure out how to get out, and he, uh, I was just fascinated with listening to him talk about the fact that in order to live in the community, you needed accessible housing. You needed access to attendant services that you could afford. You needed curb cuts and lifts on buses. You needed to be able to have a job. You needed to have access to education. None of that was readily available to people with disabilities in 1973. None of it. M- Minneapolis had curb cuts. They were the first city in the country to do them en masse. Saint really? Not a wow, one. I yep. never knew that. Yeah, well, that's what Max told me, and I believed everything he said. Of course I did. I married him. I believed everything he said. <laughs> so, um, So I learned a tremendous amount about what did and did not exist for people with disabilities. As a young physical therapist, I saw... Disability through the lens of a healthcare professional. We need to fix them. We need to do as much as we can for them. I knew nothing coming out of school about what people with disabilities experience when they leave the healthcare system, and it wasn't good. I began to see disability through a different lens. I saw disability through the lens of Max Starkloff. It was an epiphany for me, and I thought, there's plenty of PTs in the world. There aren't enough people who see the need for change to, to emancipate people with disabilities and bring rights to this group of individuals, and I signed up right away. I mean, I, I continued as a PT there for three years, but Max and I got married in two years, but the whole time we dated, I just began to meet other people with disabilities. I met the great Ginny Laurie, who was one of the early disability rights advocates and brought people like Ed Roberts, Max Starkloff, Lex Frieden, Judy Human all together to begin to craft a independent living movement. I mean, I, I i was at the i was at ground zero as our movement was gaining momentum and and what I've been taught by my friends with disabilities, you, it, it, I I just I don't know. You can't bottle it. There's not a bottle big enough.
1: That's right. Well, wow. You know, even hearing you talk, let me tell you something, that I have to figure out how to do this calling. I've been on the air since 1995, and as you know, because you've been on, right. and so has Andy, so has Senator Harkin, so has Ted Kennedy, so has uh, uh, Tony Quello, so has Governor uh, Thornburg, uh, ever, you Judy Human. yeah, they've all been on, and they all talk about things like what you just talked about, which I'm going to have you on uh, n- again next year, because my idea is to have all people on the show to talk about the beginnings, the history, Yeah. and even Mark really asked me once, yep. how can we get all these shows Because you have all that history, which, of course, I will give away for free to a school or to a library or something. Because it's so irritating. You should be able to go out and say, do you know Max Starcloth? And they should say, oh, yes, I read about him.
2: Yep. Right. Mark Johnson's big on this, too. Um, Yeah. And Charlie Carr, there's some, I can give you a list of names. We'll talk.
1: Okay, okay, but you know what then I mean. And you already it's know so some important. of the
2: real greats.
1: <laughs> no, that's okay. I, I, It's a good plan. So, yeah.
2: Paraquad.
1: Okay, how did that all start, and how did
2: Starkloff Institute come to be? Well, so with Paraquad, um, Max was trying to form, uh, he was trying to figure out how to get out of there, and but he didn't. He wanted to get out of the nursing home, but he didn't want to just get himself out and the rest of people who didn't want to be there in the first place would be stuck having to go into institutions. So he wanted to do something that, through his experience, would benefit other people too. So friends um, advised him to start a nonprofit organization, and his um some of the people he met with as advisors initially said well you know you're you're quadriplegic and there are people who are paraplegic why don't you call it paraquad so he did and um for lack of a better term and um then he began to uh, the two of us actually we began to work on curb cuts and lifts on buses which by the mid-'70s, we had both those things accomplished, and we were looking for other things. But at Paraquad, we created one of the first ten federally funded independent living centers in the country. The The Rehabilitation Services Administration had set aside $2 million at the urging of disability advocates um, that could go out to ten centers spread out throughout the country to start independent living centers and begin to shape what they would look like. And St. Louis was one of the first ten. And actually, I'll just segue and say that out of that group of first ten, we also formed the National Council on Independent Living, which, you know, Kelly Buckland runs today. But Max was the first president of the National Council on Independent Living, and we got that off the ground by 1982. But um I digress. But anyhow, at No, PowerPoint, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At Paraquad, um, we had uh, independent living specialists who were all people with disabilities who would do a lot of peer consulting with other people with disabilities to try to help them not have to live in institutions and be able to live in the community, but understanding what your rights and your responsibilities were. Right then, your responsibilities were to to stand up and, and make your own plan, but there weren't very many rights So we had to work for rights. So independent living centers that are really 51% majority controlled and staffed by people with disabilities should be providing independent living services that are focused on living in the community and having the personal assistance you need. And they should also be strong advocates for public policy in their state legislatures and in their own communities where they live to continue fighting for change in housing and education and transportation and just infrastructure and curb cuts and making the quality of life for people with disabilities better in their communities and in their states. Paraquad, just because of Max and I and the interest we had in networking with other disabled people, Paraquad became recognized as an international leader in independent living and disability rights, just because of our associations with Ed Roberts, Judy Human, uh, Lex Frieden, Mark Apristo, Charlie Carr, so many, Mark Johnson, just so many strong advocates that we associated with, and of course Justin and Yoshko came along too, and we just began the the we just cast wider and wider nets, and. We did meet up with um, people in Japan through the Japan-USA Conferences on Disability and Judy's travels all around the world. We began to network with more people. So Paraclod became um, a, a, a local community-based organization that had an international reach. It doesn't anymore. After we left, it lost that, but but it did at that time. And that helped independent living centers – to flourish all across the country and all across the world just by being able to connect with independent living centers here who were willing to share our own personal experience with people in other countries who wanted to do it. So we, um, we were there for 33 years, and then there was, I, to be quite honest, there was a coup d'etat, and um, we were no longer there. And... Um, but bob funk came in and kind of straightened it out uh but we decided that we weren't finished with with, with what we were doing
1: wait that you were we, no longer you were no longer where
2: at paraquad we were there was uh, a coup d'etat Oh. Uh, yeah. uh, they waited until max got sick and then they revolted and tossed us both out but anyway we well, decided Oh, remember what we i said at the
1: beginning there you go
2: that's what i'm talking about <laughs> yeah right, that's go exactly ahead. right go ahead so we decided that we we just weren't finished. We we'd created a good organization that enabled people to identify what independence was for them and a strong advocacy voice in the, at least in the state legislature and CareQuad continues to do that and does it well. Um continues to advocate for more changes that improve the quality of life of disabled people. But we weren't finished. We if you had asked us 45-plus years ago, what was the single greatest barrier facing people with disabilities? We would have said attitudes without without blinking an eye. And if you ask me today, I'll tell you it's the same thing, attitudes toward people with disabilities, because the attitude of a legislator, of an educator, of an employer toward people with disabilities is going to shape whether or not somebody with a disability is going to be benefit from what happens legislatively or... Participate in higher education, or even training programs, or um, you know, or even uh, participate in their own communities, just because attitudes shape public policy. They shape they shape everything about how we relate to a subject, and the subject of disability has long been cast in shadows of not not looking at people with disabilities as being emancipated, but rather people we have to take care of. And as I said earlier, I don't like the attitude that we have to take care of disabled people. We need to empower them to take care of themselves. And that's what independent living centers are supposed to be. So at the Starkloft Disability Institute, we decided that we needed to continue to change attitudes. And when we founded it in 2003, we were looking toward the next big step. What's the next big step for people with disabilities? And Max and I looked at each other and said, It's employment through independent living centers you can cre- you can create your own independence your own lifestyle the advocacy what we've done has opened up the community to people to live in the community but if you want to be if you want to be fully emancipated you need a salary an income you need it and that you have to get a job to do that nobody's getting rich off of SSI checks from the social security administration mm-hmm. so we decided that the next big step was economic independence through employment. So we began to work on employment. We also began to work on disability studies at universities. So we teach disability studies at Maryville University, and we have been since 2005. We've created a disability studies curriculum there. And we also promote universal design, because I think it's short-sighted to continue to create commercial buildings, um, transit systems, Residential homes, infrastructure that is not universally welcoming to all people, including people who have a disability. Design is very important to us. Um, so, the Starkloft Disability Institute, our 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 main focus is on employment, but but disability studies and universal design remain an important um, uh, um, aspect of our our institute.
1: Wow. What a great testament to Max. Thank huh?
2: you. Yeah, Max, right. uh, this was you all his vision.
1: You kept it Yep, yep. Well, listen, I have every half hour, sort of like a CNN news break, but our news break is called Advocacy Matters, because I made a decision that, you know, I want to keep everyone Knowing what's going on in the world of disability, and I could not think of anyone better to do this than Perry Jude Radisic, who is the CEO from the Pennsylvania Disability Rights. And Perry Jude, are you on with us now?
0: Yes, Joyce, I'm here. I'm on, and and uh, you made a good decision because there continues to be uh, really important things happening in the US Congress to talk about. All right, we're ready. Well, uh, the topic today is seclusion and restraint in our K through 12 school system. And on Wednesday, which is tomorrow, the United States House of Representatives, the Committee on Education and Labor, is going to hold a hearing on seclusion and restraint in our K through 12 school systems. There has not been a congressional hearing to examine seclusion and restraint in our schools for the last seven years. So this is an important step forward in trying to look at, uncover the high rate of seclusion and restraint used on students with disabilities. We hope the hearing will result in legislation that will establish standards and limits on the use of restraint and seclusion intervention in school settings. So let's look at some data. This data comes from the United States Department of Education. And we know that students with disabilities make up about 12% of all enrolled students in schools. But listen to this. Students with disabilities make up 71% of all students who are restrained. Uh, And uh, 71%. And 66% of all students who are secluded. So these numbers are shocking. They are. It's harmful and traumatic to these students, and it's completely unnecessary. And Joyce, even here at Disability Rights Pennsylvania, we get these cases, we get families who call our office, whose children come home bruised. We know that there are least restrictive alternatives that are available if schools would just follow the individualized education plans for these students. So we are happy that Congress is working with special education advocates, and we're happy that the Educational Labor Committee is going to hold a hearing and work towards a bill that will be called Keeping All Students Safe Act. So the legislation will be designed to protect students from harmful seclusion and restraint, and will provide training resources to school districts. So some states have standards on seclusion and restraints, and others don't. So we really need federal intervention here uh, so that there is some consistency from state to state. Up on our website, uh, you will see a letter that is signed by 33 national organizations to the committee that will be holding the hearing tomorrow. These organizations include the ACLU, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, the Council of Parents and Attorney Advocates, Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, National Disability Rights Network, the National PTA, the ARC, and so many others. So advocacy matters. It matters when parents are their child's best advocate and call out the restraint and seclusion that happens to their kids. It matters to us special education advocates to push Congress to address these high rates of seclusion and restraints on students with disabilities. So check out our website at disabilityrightspa.org and find the link to the hearing that's going to happen tomorrow and other useful information about Keeping All Students Safe Act. So again, you can find us at disabilityrightspa.org. So thanks, Joyce, and thanks for Advocacy Matters.
1: Oh, thank you, uh, and Before you go, and by the way, everyone, I am so honored to be on the board of Disability Rights, PA, and Colleen, I know you know Kurt Decker, uh, who has the whole organization. Uh, But Perry, I just wanted to mention to you that when I first became involved with the National Epilepsy Foundation, I will never forget when the chair of the board, Linda, told the story of her son, who has epilepsies, was having Uh, seizures at school and they called and told her and she went to the school and couldn't find him and that's because he was locked in a closet. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, you know, this mindset has been there a long time but everyone, please go to Disability Rights PA, read Advocacy Matters and, hey, make a contribution while you're reading that. Thank you so much, Perry. Hey, thanks, Joyce,
0: and let's hope the hearing goes well for all of us and for the kids uh, in schools uh, so that we can uh, do something about seclusion and restraint.
1: Yeah, amen to that. Thank you. Sure, take care. Okay, so Colleen, see, we started doing this because I also want to educate our listeners so they know what's happening in our country, what's going on um, because a lot of people you know they don't know and something like that is just so critically
2: important to all of us oh it's a it's a terrible issue. I saw something on Facebook recently where um, a little child had um, uh, was being um, abused. Uh, Verbally abused and teased a little bitty kid in a school, and it was caught on camera. And it's people don't think it happens, and they don't believe little children. But bullying little kids with disabilities is simply not acceptable. And a lot of these children, as as Perry said, there are there are least restrictive strategies that can be done to to. Really reach out to these children and help them to learn instead of keeping them frustrated in environments where they act out. It's it's just it's a it's attitude again. It's back mm-hmm. to attitude. Yeah, right. These right. are our children. Let's mm-hmm. em, let's empower these kids. Don't restrain mm-hmm. them. Amen to that. Yeah. So, Colleen, Thank you for you doing know, that.
1: Oh, I believe in it, Colleen. Um, you know, a lot of people that have disabilities or are involved with a spouse partner child parent whatever with a disability not all become advocates and of course there are many why did you and max decide to do that do you know what i mean there are a lot of people with disabilities but they don't all they see all these things but they don't all say that's it i'm going to dedicate my life to this why why well, do you think you and max did that
2: I don't think we thought we were dedicating our life to it at first. I, I, I honestly believe that Max was stuck in an institution. He wanted to get out. He had an ally in me, and we became a real force to get him out of there. And, of course, it, it, I, I make light of this. It was easy for him to get out. He married me, and we left. But not everybody can do that, and it was very clear to us, because I don't have a physical disability, I have I have ADHD, but it doesn't. I say to people, it doesn't show unless you hang around me long enough, then it'll show. But um, I think as you get involved in issues that you want to help yourself, and as I said earlier in this interview, Max wanted to make sure that we didn't do it just for him, that it would benefit other people with disabilities. You begin to meet more people. You begin to become very empowered. The names I've mentioned of people that Max and I had the privilege of working with who have become our very good friends um, has been very inspiring to us, and you get hooked. You feel... You feel like you're making a difference, and there's a, there's a very important reason to get up every day, and that is to continue doing what you're doing because I can look back on the way it was when Max and I first started and look now, and we're way down the road. We are way better. But I'll tell you this. When we first started and ran up against people who said, that's not realistic. You can't be telling all these people with disabilities they can live in the community and don't have to live in institutions, and they can hire their own attendants and manage them themselves and not have to hire home health agencies. You're crazy. You can't do that. And and we thought, well, we got to stop talking to these poo-pooers and naysayers and we did. We stopped talking to the negative people and went looking for people that would listen to us. And we, we just, we just never gave up. And, but you do become very, um, energized when you go to your board of aldermen and you say, you know what, curb cuts in our neighborhood would really help people in wheelchairs, but also mothers with baby carriages and people riding bicycles to cross the street. And your alderman puts forth the, the bill, and you, get, you put your mayor in a wheelchair, and you wheel him around, and he sees that it's dangerous to wheel in streets, and you get curb cuts. When you pass something like that, that benefits everyone, you become very excited. We did it. Then you take on the next issue. Well, there aren't any lifts on the buses. And how can people get around? How could they even go to a job if they don't have money and they can't buy a car? We need to advocate for buses. And so we advocated for buses, and what do you know? We got the buses. We became more empowered. It becomes something that is so important and so satisfying, and you feel like you're really making a difference. And... You just keep going. And so before you knew it, we were just hooked and we kept going. One little success led to another. Then we got involved nationally. We started the National Council on Independent Living. Then we began to reach out and meet people from other countries. That was in the mid-'80s when the Japan-USA Conference of Persons with Disabilities started. We met people like Shoji and Yukiko Nakanishi. It just kept snowballing. And you meet more people around the country because of the National Council on Independent Living, it becomes very, very exciting to be empowered by the people you get to work with all across the country and all across the world who all believe that disability rights are civil rights, and we're not going to take no for an answer. So that's how we did it. (laughs) We fell into it. Yeah. It just becomes
1: something you just have to do. You, know, you do. Once you Somebody's get Somebody's got to do it. Why not us? Nothing yes, about yes. us without us. That's right. Nothing about us without us. Colleen, you talked about attitude, stigma, which is stigma, and employment. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you do? Because as you know. It's amazing. How can next year be the 30th anniversary of the Americans, the signing of the Americans with Disabilities Act and still have 70% of people with disabilities not counted in the workforce? You know, when you think about that, wow, that's terrible. You know? Yeah. But yeah. anyway, yeah. what do you do? What do you do uh, in that area at the uh, Starcloth Disability
2: Institute? Well, first of all, in 2018, the Bureau of Labor Statistics just came out with this data and said that the unemployment rate for people with disabilities declines to 8% in 2018. Um, And that 19.1% of persons with disabilities were employed compared to 65.9% 65.9% of those with no, no disability. That means that we're still at close to 80% unemployment of people with disabilities, and that's not okay. So there's a couple things that we do. We, we, we took a look at what everybody else is doing when we, when we started the Starkloff Disability Institute. We said, well, if all of the employment efforts which have been going on since we started in this movement... I mean, employment's been an issue... Um, since the you know, '70s, getting people with disabilities into jobs, well, if the, we looked at the model, and, and by and large, our view of the model is nonprofit organizations have job counselors and job coaches, and they sit down with you, and they tend to be people who don't have a disability, and they um, might be, you know, rehab counseling graduates or something like that. And they sit down, they teach you how to write a cover letter how to write a resume, how to dress for success, and then they go out and find you a job. Well, if that worked, everybody with a disability would have a job, but it's not working. So we said, what can we do that's different? We have staff who have been turned down for jobs um, and know what that feels like, people who are highly qualified for jobs. Susan Menhart, who's our Director of Employment, here, um, was one. She was a social worker for 18 years. She got high performance reviews all the time. When she became disabled, the nonprofit organization and she worked with homeless people. And when she became disabled, they said, "Oh well, you know, get 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 your rehab and come back, and we'll have a job for you." Well, when she got her rehab, and she wheeled back. To the former employer, she, she entered a room with the three men sitting on the opposite side of the table who she'd never seen before, and she knew she wasn't going to work there anymore, and they told her. They told her she was a liability. This is after the ADA was passed. She didn't know about the ADA. She could have sued them for that. But wow. instead, we grabbed her, and um, she put together a course, which we offer through Maryville University's continuing education program. And this is a 10-week course. You're in class two times per week for three-hour classes. So by the time you finish, you have 60 hours of how to find a job. And we don't have non-disabled people with degrees coming in and telling you how to get yourself a job. We have at least three of our corporate partners, Centene Corporation, Nestle Purina Pet Care, um, sometimes St. Louis University or Enterprise Rent a Car, or we have a lot of companies, and more and more are jumping on board. They send their recruiters and hiring managers, people who do, who interview people and hire them for a living, come in and train our candidates how to write that resume, how to write that cover letter. They drill on dress for success and on how to handle yourself in an interview. They actually conduct interviews with our candidates. These people learn how to network, how to do elevator pitches, what impact this will have on their benefits. Um, They write their resumes and cover letters and have them reviewed by these corporate partners who come in. But this class is taught by Susan Menhard and another of our staff, Jason Hartsfield, who's also disabled and struggled to find a job. People who couldn't get a job because of their disability understand what you go through how you feel when you know that you're being turned down because of your disability. And this class is a winner. Eighty percent of the people who take our class find their own jobs. I'm a big stickler on find your own job. If you learn how to find your own job, you're going to be able to integrate into a company, and if you want to move up, you'll know how to have that conversation. If you want to, if you want to leave there and get another job, you'll, be, you'll know how to get your own job. That's part of independence. So that's the way we do it. That's for adults who already have um, some kind of a trade or technical training or they have a college. We've even had PhDs in our program. We've had lawyers in our program. Um, who couldn't find a job because of their disability, and after our course, they did. That's what we do for adults. And then I said, well, you know, that's fine for adults, but we've got all these corporations now because of the 503 requirements under the OFCCP, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs. We also, and, and that was only in 2014 that, Federal contractors had to start hiring people with disabilities at the rate of 7% of their workforce. But we also have diversity and inclusion efforts in companies. So we now, and you know this because you've been in this field for such a long time and making tremendous contributions, you know that this is the best time, Joyce, for us to be working hard to get people with disabilities into the workforce because now employers are looking for them. So I said... I looked at the candidates who come in with, jobs, with job skills already, and most of them aren't training to work in corporate America. So we started Dream Big. Dream Big is a youth initiative. We go out to high schools and we look for teenagers with disabilities, and we say to them, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a social worker. I want to be a case manager. I want to be a special ed teacher because that's the system they grew up in. And we say, well, why don't you get involved in Dream Big? And Dream Big right now has uh, summer camps where there are three separate weeks. The first week this year we're doing three weeks. The first week is focused on STEM. So Boeing, uh, Centene, a place called Riot Games, a place called Launch Code, which was which is started, which teaches people to code. Um, these are companies that are involved. In working with our teenagers, oh, uh, Donald Danforth Plant Science Center and Bayer, the former Monsanto, they're all in. We take the students to a different company every day. They spend half a day with the company, and the company starts off by telling them, we want you to come work here. Nobody says that to our kids, Joyce and then they show that they take them on a tour, they feed them breakfast and lunch, they have their their employees volunteer to come in and tell them this is what I wanted to be when I grew up, this is what I studied in college, this is the first job I had here and this is what I'm doing now to show these children that there's a range of opportunities. You you may think you're going to be one thing, but you might end up being another thing, but if you prepare yourself properly for what corporate america wants you have the opportunities to do lots of things and um the kids are really taking to it the parents are blown away because they're saying where have you been and we're like well we just got this idea a few years ago so help us build this program the second week is focused on trade and tech so we have things like um um there's there there's um I can't remember actually what's all in the trade and tech week, but I know one of them is going to the chef school. Um, it, we have a local chef school here, but there's all trade and technical kind of things during that week. The third week is going to be a variety of things. So it could be STEM. It could be trade and tech. Um, we, we have a lot of different companies lined up that are going to work with our kids doing the same thing. In the afternoon... Our staff, all of whom are people with disabilities, talk about independence. What do you want to be when you grow up? What choices are you making about college or trade or tech school? What does independence look like for you? Are you an advocate? Are you a self-advocate? Do you attend your IEPs? Do you speak up and talk about what you want for your future? So we do a lot of empowerment with these students in the afternoons. Um, students can take one week, two weeks, or three weeks if they want to. Um, we're also creating programming once a month throughout the year when we're not doing the three-week summer camps just to remain engaged with these students and keep them excited about their futures. The companies will let us bring the kids back for mentoring and for job shadowing to keep them engaged. And they might, you know, for a student who wants to work at Nestle Perina Pet Care Or Centene, we want to partner them up with a mentor in that company who can keep engaging with them so that they get out of high school, go to college, and get into start on their pathway toward a company that'll be waiting for them when they get out. So it's very exciting. Um, It's a program that I think is going to grow very well. Um, We're beginning to get more support for it, and we're getting. um, It's a cross disability program. We have kids who are deaf kids who are blind, lots of kids on the autism spectrum with Asperger's. We've got, you know, kids with cerebral palsy, kids in wheelchairs. It's it's a cross-disability program, and we're open to anybody. Uh, we're just limited by uh, to a class of 20 each week. But it's um, it gets kids focused on who they really want to be. Wow, I
1: love that. You know, for 20 years now... I have taught the Vendor Leadership Academy that I designed at four different school districts, four different companies uh, on a volunteer basis. And it's only been in this past year that it was launched as a not-for-profit. However, it's different than, you know, what you're doing because these are a lot of these students... um, Although I wish they would all be going into the STEM area, a lot of these students are in poverty or right. may not be able to go to college. Right. Uh, so we're creating these apprenticeships, but the Student Bu- Business Leadership Network does train them, and this is about stigma. And Valerie yeah. Jarrett. Went with us to form a community engagement curriculum, and you'll love this. It's teaching people how to vote and you know getting involved in the community. But this model we're coming up with, we're giving away. We're we're giving it away uh, ac- across the country, you know, to all groups. Uh, but it's interesting because it's similar yet different to what you're doing, and I really mm-hmm. applaud you. For what you're doing, I mean, I think that is terrific uh, because
2: well, I just think it's great. Thank you, Joyce. I, I'm very, I'm very happy that the parents are so excited about it. But so are the young people. They're finding out that people want them. That's really important. That we let them know that there's a bright future out for them, and that company leaders will come into this group and say, we're so glad you're here, and we really want you to come back and work for us. That's, that's hope right there. That's inspiration. That's excitement for these young kids, and we're really excited about that. Now, these are high school students? Yes, or, high school and college. I'm sorry. We're also doing a college outreach program because you need to, I want our staff to find out who's on the campuses now, when are they gonna graduate, what are their degrees, because companies are coming to us and saying, okay, so where are all these disabled people that you say that we should be hiring? Well, where are they indeed? So we we wanna basically find out where they are and what their interests are and um, get them involved in Dream Big and connect them up with corporations because they're gonna be there sooner than the teenagers and these companies can snap them up as soon as they get out of college. So we're yeah. working, that's, that's our newest initiative along with Dream
1: Big. How long have, how many times do I hear this? Where are they? I like yeah. it when people say to me, how, Joyce, we want to start hiring people with disabilities, but we can't find them. And I say, I can't, they're in your company right now. They have. Yeah. Uh, depression, bipolar disorder, MS, epilepsy, it's just they're not telling you. I mean, people are there. They are out there. I know because of the number of people we send every year, not just to companies, but to the federal government. But yes, I know. I hear that also. So, Colleen, I know we're coming toward the end of the show, but what do you
2: hope to leave as your legacy? I hope that my legacy, uh, I have two. I have a professional and a personal one. My professional legacy is about increasing employment among people with disabilities. And and our niche is people who are college, trade, or technically capable. There's so much going on in supported employment. We're not working in that area right now because everybody else is. So college, trade, and tech. I want to see an employment increase, a big jump. That, that would make me feel very successful. I also want to see youth leaders in companies as ambassadors because when you get a coworker with a disability who comes in and works next to you or on your team or rises up in the company, that begins to change attitudes in the company about people with disabilities as good employees. So those are two major things that I want to see happen. I'd like to see more Universal design, I've, I've done six universal design summits, um, and I think it's helping to generate a, a different approach to how people approach design and make it more welcoming for everybody to use. And as, you, as your needs change, as you get older, it enables you to stay in your own home and not have to be in an institution. On a personal level, my children, Max and I, had three children. We lost Emily in, in 2008. We still have Max and Megan, and I have eight grandchildren, and they are my personal legacy to the world. They, my children and my grandchildren are good people who care about others, and they're living good lives, and they're staying out of trouble, and
0: that's my personal legacy.
2: Well, what a great one that
1: is. And Colleen, thank you so much for being with us today. I just love you and keep on doing what you're doing. Joyce, it's been
2: a privilege. I love you too, and call me up anytime. I love talking with you. All right. Congratulations on your show. It's it's phenomenal because disability matters.
1: Yeah, right. Well, listen, everyone, I'll be talking to you again next week with Lori Hennenborn from Accenture. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com.